There's worse things, Joey, than being a young man. I'm aware. <laughs> Back when your hairline isn't receding and everything works right. That's the one thing I got going for me is I still got a full head of hair. The one thing? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's what I cling to. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, Matt Morgan. I'm holding out for a hero till the end of the night. <laughs> Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. I'm struggling to come up with the next lyric to that uh, Bonnie Tyler classic, but I've got nothing. <laughs> And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the EDHREC cast, we're going to give that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? We're reversing the pre-con effects. We're anti-episode one this week. <laughs> That's right. This week we're going to be talking about a kind of curious phenomenon, which I think we may have hinted at a couple of uh, things about it in the past. As Matt mentioned, our very first episode was about the precon effect, but for this episode we're going to be looking at what I guess we're dubbing the reverse precon effect. You guys ready? Yeah, let's do it. Even though Dana's Dana's lyrics point, you know, it's not really on top of his game today, but uh, it's like we'll, we'll get we'll get through it. Right after I said that, I'm like, oh, it's, he's got to be strong and he's got to be fast and he's got to be larger than fresh. life. Or <laughs> fresh for the fight. Okay, man. Yeah, right, right afterwards it came to me. That's one of my favorite right. gym time songs. One of my favorite <laughs> bands, Emery, they did a cover of it and they like get into like a little screamo, like thrash, like at the very end of it. And it's just super fun. So, yeah. This is all fascinating, guys. Let's <laughs> get to the magic. <laughs> You're welcome, Joey. And you're welcome to the listeners for the tidbits of trivia. For the listeners who are curious, those lyrics are written by Jim Steinman, who was the lyricist for <laughs> Meatloaf's first two albums. We're, we're here to talk about EDH Rec <laughs> and the data about magic cards. Come on, fellas. All right. So Bonnie Tyler songs aside, let's <laughs> let's talk. Did you guys play any fun games or have any cool magic stories, magic related stories <laughs> to share? So I'm going to talk about Bonnie Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know in Footloose, the Kevin Bacon classic? Oh, my goodness. Faster right. Than the Speed of Night is a really underrated album. Um, okay, you know, I, I got it. I got to rein us back in. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I played a couple more Windgrace games this week. Um, and I think we mentioned this last week. But, like, that – we were high in the card. We, like, we liked our Windgrace. Um, I don't know if I – personally appreciated how really really strong he was i think i called it a value engine and he absolutely is but the amount of value he generates is insane yeah i've been feeling the same way with my particular wind grace build it's it's been really impressive and even the synergy like like i i was thinking that he would just be a good useful you know frexian arena kind of card sitting there like drawing you cards and, and bringing back lands and, and providing kind of enchantment-esque utility while you were playing other strong cards with landfall abilities that were going to win you the game but yeah he, he just enables so many things and makes all of those already strong and useful cards that much stronger 
you know, he makes the Gitrog Monsters ability just that much better. And he, he you know, gives you those double landfall triggers in addition to your regular landfall. It just, it's just a fantastic card. Yeah, I'm really, really hyped on it. Speaking of Jund Commanders, I actually kind of have an embarrassing story. I was chatting with some friends of mine just earlier today, and we were talking about the movie Infinity War, which features um, a really, really terrifying villain. And I was talking about how Thantis wanted to get his Infinity Gauntlet. <laughs> and it took them a second to be like, do you mean do you mean Thanos? And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, I do mean Thanos, the big purple guy. And not Thantis the War Weaver, the Spider Jund Commander from the Nature's Vengeance deck. So that's how mixed up my uh, my nerd cred is right now. I'm sort of all over the place when it comes to to that. It's uh, pretty embarrassing. I mean, if that's the worst thing that you've done, Joey, then I think you're in pretty good shape. What is more terrifying than a gigantic war weaving spider with an Infinity Gauntlet, though? I mean, really? I mean, we we're already talking about Thantis more than anyone thought anyone would be talking about Thantis. So that's something. That is very true. I, I like Thantis a lot. I, I like commanders that shake up the game. But anyway, as long as we're talking about some precon commanders, we should get into that reverse precon effect. So let's get now to that main topic that we mentioned. We all know the precon effect. Players buy a precon, which is sometimes full of subpar cards for the particular commander that they want to play. These cards aren't usually the type that you'd actually include if you built that commander from scratch. But since those cards were already in the deck, they get left in. So then, when EDHREX scrapes data from deck-building websites, the data shows a high percentage of players playing those specific cards, which then creates a feedback loop, as players see that that card is popular in EDHREX and then include it in their own decks as well. This is all stuff that we've talked about on our previous shows about the pre-con effect. In effect, that card sort of becomes popular purely because it came in the starter deck. For this episode, though, we want to discuss sort of a reverse pre-con effect, cards that become unpopular because they get left in the precon starter deck. This is pretty weird, but it's something that we've been seeing quite a bit, and I think it could be pretty useful to take a look at some of the data around those cards. Generally speaking, I think that these sort of fit into two main categories. The first would be cards that are so good that they should be ubiquitous, but because they have a limited supply from the precons, they kind of get left, you know, they, they're not seeing as much play as they should if they had shown up in, for example, a booster pack. The second category would be the cards that are regarded as, you know, kind of funny, kind of neat, but they're a little situational and not always powerful, and therefore they get left by the wayside. So, to try and give a bit more information about those types of cards that suffer from this reverse precon effect, where instead of being super popular, they become unpopular, let's get into that first category. I think one of the most classic examples to probably get people on board with this is the card Teferi's Protection. We all know Teferi's Protection. Three mana, white instant, phase all of your stuff out. You can't be touched until your next turn. This is an amazing card, but because of its limited supply, it's just not showing up a whole lot, even though it probably should. Yeah, um, and it's it's really a, it's a matter of what side of like the the center point the card should be on. So Teferi's Protection can only be in a finite amount of decks, right? Because it's only in the amount of decks they printed that... Was it the Edgar Markov precon? Yes. So, like, that amount of printings, it can only be in that many decks, just period. And if a bunch of people kept that Teferi's protection in that Edgar Markov precon, which a bunch of people did, it's still... I mean, it's going to be in a lot of decks, but it's... I, I guess we're looking at it's not in as many decks as it could be or should be in based on its power level, just because there's not enough copies out there. 
Right, exactly. Currently, Teferi's Protection is showing up in 4,575 decks, which is, you know, a very respectable amount. But its top commander is Edgar Markov, because it showed up in that deck. By comparison, another pretty comparable card that also protects your whole board is Heroic Intervention, and that shows up in more than double. That's in 8,566 decks, and that's just all over the place. There's a whole bunch of different commanders using it. And because Heroic Intervention came in a booster pack and is more widely accessible... That's why we see it getting more play than this really awesome Teferi's Protection, which honestly, like, I can't think of a single white deck that wouldn't want to run that card. But its limited supply and its enormous price tag just kind of keep it out of the reach of players. Yeah, and I think another point that, that is worth pointing out uh, is, you know, the price tag on, on Teferi's Protection. You know, that card carried so much of the value because a lot of the newer vampires, they weren't really that desirable, so so much of the value... It went right to Teferi's Protection, so not only were people not taking out of their Edgar Markov decks, they just, some people were priced out immediately, and we talked about that uh, a couple times, you know, the price has got to go somewhere. Our content manager, Jason Alt, he'll talk on his podcast all the time, you know, not every card's going to be $2 if there's a $40 price tag on the pre-con, so, you know, the value's going to go somewhere, and just with Teferi's Protection, like, that just happened to be that card. Right. Yeah, I mean, if if that was in the same set as heroic intervention, it would be it would be in more decks probably than heroic intervention, or at least as many. And we would also see it showing up in like it's the top commanders when we look at the page for EDH Rec and we look at Teferi's Protection. Its top commanders page would probably be really really desperate. It yeah. wouldn't like Edgar Markov would not likely be the top commander for Teferi's Protection, even though like you look on its page right now and it looks like oh maybe Edgar Markov is the best place for this card. Well, it's it's not. It's actually just a bias because of the original precon effect. But the numbers on the other commanders that is sort of that reverse precon effect because it's not showing up in all of the other places. Because why would you take it out of the deck that you got it in? It's so good that it probably deserves to just stay. But you could be using it in all of these other places because it saves you and your board. It's such an effective card. It should be ubiquitous, but just the limited supply of it makes it a lot harder to put places. There are a couple of other examples of really good cards like this. Things that I think probably should be a bit more ubiquitous, but you know the statistics on them are just kind of, they do suffer a little bit. I think another good example is a Command Beacon, which came in the 2015 product in the Azuri deck, which you all know I don't like Azuri, but I do like Command Beacon a lot. But again, this is another one where that price tag has kind of gotten a little out of hand. Command Beacon's like, what, $25 now? And granted, it's in 12,000 decks at the moment, which is a lot, but again, its top commander is Azuri Claw of Progress. And it probably shouldn't be because he's four mana and you could be using it on something, I don't know, bigger. And you could be using it in other land-based strategies like Lord Windgrace or Gitrog Monster, which are playing it, but at a much lesser clip than if that card had been available in booster packs. Well, and in the case of Command Beacon, we should note there's actually been a second printing. It had a judge printing in 2016. And it's, like you said, it's still a 20 plus dollar card. I think it's roughly around, it's closing in on 25. I'm looking right now. And that's with that second judge foil printing. So yeah, that's that's a perfect example of a card that if it was in a different set, you'd see a lot more copies of it. Right. What are some examples of cards that you guys think sort of suffer from this reverse precon effect where they have such a limited supply and they sort of stay in the deck that they originally came in so they don't get played in all the places they should? What are some examples of cards that you guys notice? I, I like Arachnogenesis a lot. Surprise Spiders where you basically fog and put a spider in play with reach for every attacking creature. So, And non-spiders don't do combat damage that turn. So it effectively fogs anyone, and you can then block any creatures you choose to block with those spiders. 
the spiders will take no damage, but they will deal damage back to those creatures. So it's a it's a fantastic fog that will oftentimes kill a bunch of things and then leave you a pile of tokens afterwards. If you're playing in a token deck, I mean, that's a perfect fog to run. But even if you're not playing a token deck, it's a pretty perfect fog to run. And it's just not in that many decks because people left it in the pre-con deck that it came in originally and either just don't know it exists or don't have copies out there or think they maybe don't really want to run it because they it's a pre-con card. There must be better ones out there. So that's one I think should be in a lot more decks. Yeah, and this is actually a really great way to sort of recognize the reverse precon effect, I think. When you look at the page for Arachnogenesis, you'll see that its top commander is Azuri Claw of Progress in 1,082 decks. The next commander that is most played is Ishkanah Graft Widow, and it's in 397 decks. And that's a really great space for it because Ishkanah is a spider tribal commander, so Arachnogenesis, perfect fit. But that drop-off from 1,082 to 397, that's really, really insane. And like that's sort of where you can see that sort of reverse precon effect happening there, because a lot of folks are just keeping it in the Azuri deck, but it really can go in a lot of other places because it's such a good green fog effect. But like that drop off, that statistical difference, that's what we're seeing there. And I think that that's a really good example of that reverse precon effect happening because of that card's limited supply. Yeah, th- yeah, that one. Because um, the, the next commanders in the list after Ishkana, you have got Wart and Tristani, both of whom are kind of known. Uh, token commanders and they're they're great fits there as well but they're in you know 180 wart decks and 166 tristani decks like you said versus over a thousand azuri decks right and it's not necessarily better in azuri it's good in all of these decks i mean azuri gets good use out of it right sure but so would all of these it's a really good card but that reverse precon effect is stymieing the statistics that we could be seeing it in other places well it's much like teferi's protection where if you put that in a green deck you're never going to be wrong you're not, almost never going to be wrong from putting a fog in a deck that's going to make you a pound of blockers so yeah like that's that's just a strange one that doesn't see nearly enough play because it's just just not physical copies out there for people i think right matt what's an example that you think you might have noticed uh, one of the well, I think there's two cards actually that stand out to me. Um, one is Curtain's Call. That's just a great one. You know, one card, kill two creatures, target them out. Uh, has the Undaunted mechanic, so cost goes down for every opponent you have. A lot of people are still playing. You know, Doomblade, Tear. You know, just one for one effects, and we talk about those all the time with you know, Swords of Plowshares, Path to Exile. But Curtain's Call able to hit two different creatures, um, and they don't have to be the same control or anything like that. That's a spell that I think it got expensive for a little bit. It got up to about $10 or so and has, you know, steadily gone down since then. But I think the only reason that a lot of people really paid attention to uh, any cards in that cycle, really in the Undaunted cycle, was because Curtain's Call got up, you know, fairly pricey. And then everybody kind of wrote it off because I'm not going to spend $10 on a Doomblade. So I think that one, it, it, it suffers from that reputation a little bit. And the other one that uh, jumped up recently just because of, I believe it was because of Thantus the Warweaver, uh, was Disrupt Decorum. That card mm-hmm. is super fun. It's politics done the right way, according to Matt Morgan, where you just turn creatures sideways anyways. But that one, you look at the top cards there. Edgar Markov and Mathis Fiendseeker are the top two played commanders. Um, and after that, it goes to Queen Marchesa. There aren't a lot of political commanders on that list. Um, the only one that's kind of really close, I guess, uh, it's Queen Marchesa, or however you want to play Caneos uh, and Tiro of Miletus. So uh, those two cards, I think, are, are two of my favorites that you know kind of got that bad reputation swept under the rug. They don't do enough, or 
you know, you can do it better, I guess, but really they're, they're unique cards on their own. Yeah, especially Curtain's Call is an excellent example because that one's currently only showing up in 2,457 decks, as opposed to another Black Destroy spell, Go for the Throat, showing up in nearly 12,000 decks. But Curtain's Call is definitely a better card. It's just got that, you know, limited access for players. But, like, destroying two creatures without the restriction of them having to be non-artifacts, like, that's amazing. And Curtain's Call with that Undaunted is very rarely going to cost you too much mana. And destroying those creatures, like, that'd be amazing, but Go for the Throat is just more widely accessible, and Curtain's Call tends to kind of stay in the deck that it came in. And also Disrupt Decorum, as you mentioned, like, that's only in barely 1,800 decks. And yeah, Edgar Markov's a pretty okay place for it, but it definitely would shine a lot better in those other political decks like the Mathis, the Marchesa, or the Caneos and Tiro, which are the next commanders, but again, we have a really steep drop off on their numbers like we noted with arachnogenesis and azuri so like those are really great examples i love those well to stress how good curtains call is too um like we're talking about doom blade or go for the throat or something well those do have restrictions on it if you want to have an unrestricted destroy creature spell in black that's murder which costs three mana curtains call it says six on the card but it's never six because it's undaunted with undaunted you always have at least one opponent so it's never six, it's almost always five. So immediately from the get-go, hitting two creatures, it's already more efficient than murder, spending five mana versus three. And very frequently, it's going to essentially be just a murder that hits, that hits two bodies. But it's still in, it's in a quarter of the deck's murder's in. Yeah, that's another really great one. There are some interesting cases where the original commander's deck does not actually show up as the top commander for a card, even though that card is less played than it probably should be. The example that jumps to my mind is the card Champion's Helm. This is a three-mana equipment from the very original commander product. I believe it came in the Kalia of the Vast deck. And it is a three-mana equipment. Equipped creature gets plus two, plus two. As long as the equipped creature is legendary, it also gets hexproof, and it equips for just one mana like this is a stellar piece of equipment it protects your commander it buffs it up a little bit like that thing's just fantastic and an equip for one like we all know from swift foot boots that's really really great as i mentioned it came in that kali of the vast deck kali is actually currently only playing it in 88 of her decks because i guess folks have kind of decided they don't really need it but the you know, there's a bit of a depression on the statistics for the other top commanders for this card too so kemba ka regent is the current most played for Champion's Helm, but only in 227 decks. After that, we get Zergo Helm Smasher, but only in 203. So, like, rather than seeing, like, the thousands or the multiples of hundreds that uh, some of the other cards have gotten, like Arachnogenesis or so, like, the, the Champion's Helm just, again, because it, you know, usually kind of just gets kept where it was or it's tough to find, that card, even though it really can be good anywhere... It, it's just tough to get, so it doesn't show up nearly as ubiquitously as it probably should. Yeah, if, if your deck com cares about your commander and it plays in your gameplay, or your game plan, I shouldn't say at all, uh, Champion's Helm is totally fine, especially with the numbers that we always see, you know, Lightning Greaves and Swiftfoot Boots, like you pointed out, Joey. Commander's Helm is always going to be good, you know, making a, you know, making your commander, even though if you don't care about attacking with Melek or any of those types of commanders, having a better blocker is never a bad thing either. They can't you know, kill with a curtain skull. Yeah, just that, that hexproof is so good, but it's just so hard to get that card, which, you know, that is, again, that reverse precon thing. Like, the fact that it was in a precon is actually almost a detriment to the other decks that really do crave those cards. Well, particularly that particular precon, too. We're talking, what, 2012 for that? So not, 2011. 2011. So, okay, not only is it seven years ago, that was their first attempt at commander decks. 
they printed less of those. That was, I think, the least printed of the Commander sets. Those were gone relatively quickly. Like, you weren't finding those in your Walmart 10 or 12 months after that print run came out. And then they had a gap where they didn't print a pre-con the following year. So we didn't actually get our second one till two years later. So that, that's an that's probably you know one of the more rare commander cards, just period. Now it was exactly it was in the commander's anthology, but those also like a lot of those were just kept by people who wanted the decks. They weren't necessarily parted out, at least in the frequency that you might see the decks that are available at Walmart. So yeah, that that one's even suffers even more. Anything that's in that first sequence of decks is gonna suffer even more from this and, than other cards. Yeah, and it, I, I don't by any means mean to, to criticize the numbers that we find on EDHREC. I mean, we challenge the stats every week for sure, but you know these are better cards than pure statistics would imply, and the statistics are simply informed by accessibility to those cards. So this is just another way for us to remind folks to always dig a little deeper just you know because certain cards have really high popularity doesn't always mean that those are 100% the best cards that you should be running sometimes things like access to those cards is also you know a, a thing an effect that happens on all of this data so it's really good to maintain you know, your your vigilance on it to always keep digging to find cards that are definitely right for your strategy kind of almost you know regardless of the, of, of the statistics. EDHREC is here not to tell you what you should play, but to help you find what you want to play. That's really the point of it. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of really great examples of cards like this that sort of suffer from that reverse precon effect because they are really good, but they're really limited. I think uh, Stranglehold's another great example. Hammer of Nizan's a really, really cool one. Conqueror's Flail. Uh, Path of Anstrester used. That's a really cool card as well. Deep Close Gate. I mean, there's a whole bunch of examples but they just have that limited availability. But that's just the first category of the precon effect cards. We'll get to the second category of precon, uh, excuse me, reverse precon effect cards in a second. But for now, I think we want to go head to head. So Dana, do you mind starting us off on head to head? Give us two cards that are maybe a little similar and we'll have to guess about the statistics for each of those cards. I will one up your request for two cards by giving you three. <gasps> oh my. There Dana, are... always breaking the rules. <laughs> there, are, there are three <laughs> kind of well-known and legendary commander zero-drop uh, artifacts that produce a single mana. Those would be Mox Opal, Mox Diamond, and Chrome Mox. Oh, my. So of those three, which sees more play in commander? Um, can you explain to a pleb like me what those Mox <laughs> Absolutely. all do? So Mox Opal, mostly known as a modern card, is a zero-drop legendary artifact, and if you have Metalcraft, meaning if you control three or more artifacts, you can tap it for one mana of any color. Um, Mox Diamond, if it enters the battlefield, it's also a zero-drop artifact. You may discard a land card, and if you do that, it may tap for any color mana. If you don't, you have to sacrifice it. So basically, you have to pitch a land, and you then have a Mox in play that can tap for any color. And the third one, Chrome Mox, also a zero-cost artifact. Uh, when Chrome Mox enters the battlefield, you may exile a non-artifact, non-land card from your hand, and then add one mana of any color of the exiled card's color to your mana pool. So you exile a non-land, non-artifact, and then you may tap Chrome Mox for that color mana. Oh my, lots of options, lots of zero-mana rocks that I've barely have even seen in my personal these are experience. generally played in you know more competitive decks a little more like 
edge tuned builds, but I, I was actually a little bit surprised. They all have pretty high numbers. Yeah, this definitely sounds like Matt's wheelhouse uh, since he's the competitive 60 card player among us. So I'm going to let him guess first. Oh, well, thank you, Joey. Wait, 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 wait a cop out. <laughs> um, can't hide anything from you, can you? Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, I'm going to say Mox Diamond is last on the list just because it's reserve list. It's so expensive. I mean, depending on you know how nice of a copy you want, you're put. You're looking like two hundred dollars for a, you, yes, a Mox yes, Diamond. Yes, you are. Oof. I think that alone is going to make that the last um, last played there, and because that also gets probably the most love from uh, Eternal formats. What you know, however much they actually play. You know, into the the money that's not here or there, um, but Mox Diamond last place on that list. The other two, I think it's kind of close. I think since Mox Opal only works when you have Metalcraft out, and it's you, you need a lot more help to make that good turn turn one. Chrome Mox, on the other hand, if you play it turn one, you're always going to have something to pitch to it to to make sure it turns on for mana. I'm going to go with Chrome Mox as far as EDH goes, being the most played of these options. And remind me, is Chrome Mox banned in Modern? Yes. yes Chrome Mox is. is banned in Modern. Mox Opal I is think, not, however, and Mox Diamond is right. just not legal. I think that might inform players' decisions as well. If folks have a Chrome Mox, but they can't play it in Modern, then uh, EDH becomes a good place to use it. So I think I'm going to go on... on I'm going to board that train as well. That's my guess, too. Uh, last place is... Mox Opal. It's, really? uh, it's right. only in 7,500 decks. Um, however, okay, okay. you are correct. Uh, Chrome Mox is the most played of the three in over 12,000 EDH decks. Ooh, and Mox Diamond's right in the middle at close to 10,000. I, I would wager that Mox Diamond is not actually in that many paper decks. I think that's that, probably a lot of proxies or like, I wish yeah. I had a Mox Diamond. Yeah, but I'm gonna put it in my put it in my list anyways because you know I, w- I want to have one. Yeah, um, I don't think it's actually in that many decks. Well, although none know. of them are cheap, like even the cheapest version of Chrome Mox is just under forty right now. So they are all really really pricey cards. Yeah, that's pretty intense. Alrighty, I'm gonna move on to my head to head now. I'm gonna be looking at two really bizarre Rakdos cards. The first one is called Backlash. This is a three mana Rakdos instant. Says tap target untapped creature. That creature deals damage equal to its power to its controller. The card that I'm going to be comparing this against is called Delirium. Not the mechanic Delirium, but the actual card Delirium. Also a three mana Rakdos instant. You can only play it during an opponent's turn, and it says to tap target creature that player controls. That creature deals to that player an amount of damage equal to its power. And that creature neither deals nor receives combat damage this turn. The point is, these are both really good cards that force the opponent to, you know, take damage equal to their own creature's power. It's a pretty awesome way of, like, turning their creature up against themselves, but which of these cards, Delirium or Backlash, is more popular? Man. Matt, do you have any guesses here? I have no idea. I've never even heard of either of these. (laughs) Um, I've heard... I've seen Backlash before. I can picture it in my head. It's got kind of cartoony art, I want to say. And I think it's old. I'm not sure about Delirium. Like, I don't even know what set Delirium's from. Backlash is like Invasion or Odyssey or something. It is Invasion. I'm looking it up. Delirium's from Mirage. Oh, Delirium's from Mirage. Okay, so they're both... Ugh. Um, yeah, they're both pretty old. Okay, man. I I, I don't even... Jeez. I'm going to guess Backlash then if, if, that, if Delirium's from Mirage. 
that's so old. Maybe there's more backlashes out there, but like that's I, I don't even know which would see more play. So I'm yeah, gonna go. I, I'm, I'm gonna go with backlash. I'm gonna go with delirium because I don't know which one would see more play. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, as it turns out, delirium is showing up in 221 decks, and backlash is showing up in 337. Nice. This, se- this seems like a challenge the stats type of. Honestly, Day. this is part of the reason that I wanted to talk about them. I've been housed by these cards before really, really hardcore. It's like a Rakdos deflecting palm, and I, I totally love it. It just so, so much fun. Well, I say so much fun. It's my one of my buddies who has a Queen Marchesa deck who's using these against me, and I keep dying to them. So that's why I wanted to talk about them, because he's got both in there. Um, I think they're both just excellent and... Yeah, so a little bit of challenge to stats, but it is also interesting to me that there's a difference of about 100 between both of them. And I'm not entirely sure why that is, because they both seem just really, really solid. But it probably has to do with the fact that most folks probably just don't know that these cards exist, because they're really obscure. But obscurity is no excuse. They're both really good. Yeah, they're they're both older than, insert Joey age joke here. <laughs> <laughs> they also feel a little bit meta-call-y, like if you are routinely playing against that one buddy who's playing... You know, some kind of well, let's say let's say Wind Grace Landfall and he's got like Multani and things like that in there mm-hmm. that are routinely just out of the blue for six mana, you know, a twenty two twenty two or something. That seems like a really slick medical to have those in your deck to just house somebody for twenty some damage for daring to play a creature. Yeah, frankly. And and it's kinda nice too because you know, sometimes you'll take a look at these cards, and as you mentioned, it's a meta call. Like, ooh, am I actually running against a whole bunch of people who have really, really large creatures, so this would deal a lot of damage to them? Well, if you don't, and instead in your meta you have a lot of token players, you're in Rakdos colors. So you still have Rakdos Charm, which is going to deal a ton of damage to them for each creature they control. So I like that Rakdos has really good options. It has things to protect itself for, you know, folks that go wide and for folks that go tall. And I like that diversity. Well, and, and Joey, is... On either of these spells, is it the spell dealing damage or is it the creature dealing damage? Because it could line up kind of funky with infect creatures too. Oh, that's just gross. Oh yeah, for it sure. is the creature that deals the damage actually. Ooh, so, there we go. Oof, that's I, I like the way you think, even though it's disgusting. All that, right, that's Matt, actually how nice. about you go with your head? Well, I'll click it. that's actually nice, even beyond infect, because that throws some extra wrinkles in there. It's it's not just then useful when you're talking about a big creature, but like. Someone plays a lot of combat damage creatures that, or, or or on damage creatures. I'm not even combat damage. When this creature deals damage, you know, have the person discard a card or whatever. If you see a lot of that mm. kind of stuff, it lets you kind of do weird procs with those as well. Yeah, that's definitely true. But you did mess up my transition <laughs> handing off <laughs> Matt's head-to-head. So I'm going to redo that. Matt, how about you do your head-to-head for us? So I played a couple games this weekend uh, just trying to teach some friends. And uh, there happened to be another person there besides the decks that I brought. Um, that had a, uh, what is it, St- uh, Slimefoot deck, uh, who proceeded to just ranch everybody uh, with two cards that are pretty similar and played pretty uh, similarly as far as percentages go. So in a Slimefoot, the Stowaway deck, what is played more at a higher percentage between Tender Shoot Dryad, the Joseph Schultz special, or Michaeloth? Oh, I really hope that it's Tendershoot Dryad. This is a good one, though. I like both of them. Tendershoot Dryad, we all know, makes a sapperling on everyone else's turn. Michaeloth was one that I uh, did kind of criticize in a a previous show. It doesn't do a whole lot for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can put a bunch of counters on it, and then it will make sapperlings too. But 
I think Tender Shoot's just a bit more immediate. Plus, it gives the automatic plus two, plus two to your sapperlings. So that's going to be my guess. I think that those rewards are, are a little more immediate. So let's let's go with that one. I've seen a lot of people outright hose themselves play Michael off, sacrificing too many creatures, and then get wrecked by it. And I, I also feel like newer players maybe see that, that you have to sacrifice stuff and don't love losing their own creatures either. So I think both new players who see that might not love that effect and experienced players who have seen other people hose themselves with the Michaeloth um, might also not want to run it. So I'm going to go with Tender Shoot Tried as well. Okay. Well, gladly, you both are wrong. Um, <laughs> what? Michaeloth is played at 85% of 285 decks in Slimefoot the Stowaway, whereas Tender Shoot Dryad, 82% of 285 decks. So a well, 3% difference. Well, and you know what? In Slimefoot, though, you're not hosing yourself nearly as much because at least you're getting damage procs for sacrificing. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there there are yeah, cases but, where Michaeloff can be better. So just so everybody knows, we're not trying to, to dog on Michaeloff. Like, build your deck right, and any card can be better, you know, than sure. we... It, no normally would be yeah that's a good point and hey they're both in the 80 plus percent so like yeah i, I think that's definitely fair they can put a lot of work in when you need to make saplings to hurt people that's a that's pretty great yeah we, we like we, we can bag on michael off but like um, we we say you know somebody's hosed themselves all that kind of fun stuff but how many times has a michael off gone unchecked as well and then it just sure. you know proceeds to just rinse the table and you know it's game over so Alrighty, so let's move now to that second category of reverse precon effect cards that I had mentioned. These are the ones that sort of get left by the wayside and forgotten. They look cool. Wizards, as we've seen in all of these precons, they design some really neat effects that really take advantage of the fact that this is a multiplayer environment. So it opens up some really neat design space that they can't necessarily include in a regular booster pack for booster draft, because in those formats, and even in standard, it's all just a one-on-one. -on -one. So they don't get to take advantage of those things like disrupt decorum that you know acknowledge the fact that there are multiple people and then you know play with the game that way. In precons, we see a bunch of those cards, but sometimes the cards look a little bit dirtily. They're not all as efficient as the Teferi's protections and the disrupt decorums and all that. So these kind these kind of get left by the wayside. They get chided as the uh, I don't know the equivalent of draft chaff, but in a precon deck instead of in a booster pack. And I think that means that a lot of these get left to the side because think, people think that they're not as good as some other cards, and therefore they get left out of decks. And this is, again, a second category to that reverse precon effect. They came in a precon, which then makes them derided a little bit, as opposed to being really awesome. And, and that coupled with their limited supply just means that they don't get as much statistics as they necessarily deserve. I've got a couple of examples of what I mean here. So one of the cards, for example, is Selfless Squire. I love this thing. This is a 4-mana 1-1 that came in the Commander 2016 product. It has Flash, and, excuse me, this is a white card, 3 and a white, 4-mana 1-1 with Flash, and it says when it enters the battlefield, you prevent all damage that would be dealt to you this turn, and whenever damage that would be dealt to you is prevented, it gets that many plus 1, plus 1 counters. This thing's been a total house when I play it. Folks will swing in with any number of creatures of any size, and instead of killing me, I get a selfless squire that's going to be, you know, a 28-28, and then clap back for a ton of damage on the next turn. This has always been really, really great when I play it. But it looks maybe a little situational, it looks a little cute perhaps, and that leads to it maybe not showing up in as many decks as it should. It's currently only in 2,538 decks, and... 
man, I just think it's a lot better than that number. But it sort of falls into that that whole reverse precon where it looks cute rather than good. But I just think that that's kind of wrong. So this is one of the examples that I would put forward as a, a card that's getting left to the side, but undeservedly so. Do you guys have any examples of those... Uh, you know, the, that second category of cards that people think are cute but aren't great, but maybe secretly are? Well, I know one that that we talked about, you know, on one of our very early episodes, but uh, Entrapment Maneuver is one of my favorite pre-con cards that just everybody kind of shrugs off. You know, last time we talked about it, you know, we pointed out it is a little narrow in what it can kill. Um, but if you get somebody with it, you just, you blow them out. Like, it, it's such a, a hard spell to come back from. Um, just so we know, we'll read it again real quick. Uh, Trap Maneuver is an instant for three and a white. The target player sacrifices an attacking creature. You create X-1-1 white soldier creature tokens where X is that creature's toughness. You know, somebody has a Voltron, you know, they're swinging in for, you know, 20 with a 20-20, whatever. Uh, they have to sack it because they didn't attack with anything else and you get 21 ones. That's just a card that, you know... It, it didn't get a lot of love. It's still only played in 1,300 decks right now. For as long as it's been out, there's a ton of cards that are played way more than Entrapment Maneuver is. So I think that's one that I think uh, definitely has uh, gotten swept under the rug a little bit. Dana, what about you? Duelist Heritage is one I will note in part because it's one that I kind of blew off when it first came out. And for those that don't recall, Duelist Heritage costs two and a white for an enchantment. Whenever one or more creatures attack, you may have target attacking creature gain double strike until the end of turn. So I think, I think there's a couple of layers to this. First of all, you look at it and you're like, oh, well, I could give one attacking creature double strike. Well, okay. But True Conviction gives all my creatures double strike and it gives them lifelink and it's not just on attack. How many versions of that do I need? Well, you know, if, if you're in an aura deck too, Battle Mastery sees a lot of play. It's in almost 4,000 decks. Um, as an aura that gives your creature double strike, and it's it's all the time. So again, you know, I'm, I'm I'm getting that first strike on defense as well. If your creature has vigilance or if it hasn't swung yet, um, it's like yeah, why why would I switch to that? Um, but the more I thought about it, number one, it's not an aura. So unless you're running things that specifically care about auras, it keeps you from getting two for one. So when your creature wearing it gets hit, battle mastery goes away. Duelist heritage, unless someone has a sweeper. They have to specifically deal with that enchantment on the side. Just taking care of the creature doesn't make the enchantment go away. But the second part of it that I also really didn't think about until after I, I, I thought about the aura thing and decided to give it a try was it's not just your creatures. You can give any attacking creature double strike. And that's political, I guess, but way more than being political, it allows you to manipulate attack situations in ways that are just advantageous to you, regardless whether or not it makes you friends. Someone else swings in, and you can change the outcome of that exchange to your benefit without... I mean, you can maybe get a favor for doing it too, but even if you don't want to get a favor, you can just alter attack phases. Yeah, I, I think I've it's a been great really card. with that card too. Yeah, but, but even without that, I think, like, even if it didn't have that ability, not getting two for one probably makes it better than Battle Mastery. Um, you know, yeah, you lose the occasional buff from having auras versus just an enchantment. But even without that, if you really think about it, it's probably better than Battle Mastery more often than not. And once you factor that in, it's so much better. And it's in way less decks. Yeah, and, and that's exactly it. It kind of looks cute and maybe a little political. So folks are like, ah, I'm not sure that I'll use this. But then Battle Mastery, which also is a three mana white enchantment that gives double strike. 
like it, that one ends up seeing more play because people are maybe more used to it, I guess. But yeah, there are a bunch of cards that are really, really cool still, but because they came in a certain environment, they came in these pre-cons and they aren't, you know, I don't know, precisely, again, there's sort of a je ne sais quoi about it, but folks feel like these maybe look kind of neat, but I, I don't know. I suppose what I would say is that some of these have a situational feeling to them. Like a lot of these cards that we've mentioned, you know, such as the the Duelist Heritage, but also such as maybe Selfless Squire or the Entrapment Maneuver, they feel like they're only good in X, Y, or Z situation. And folks maybe want cards that are good in all situations. They try and find cards that are never going to be a swing and a miss. And some of these cards can sometimes feel that way. And I think that might be one of the key ingredients to why these cards get a little uh, left by the wayside. An example, you know, my next example for a card that I think is not getting as much credit as it's due is actually a thief of blood so this came in uh oh goodness i think it was commander 2015 it's a six mana one one again uh it's a black vampire creature with flying but it says when it enters the battlefield you remove all counters from all permanents and it enters the battlefield with that many plus one counters for all of the other counters that were removed and this is kind of what got me thinking about the whole reverse precon topic in the first place because a buddy of mine has a Taneb the harvester deck and he's got this card in there. And it's always been something that I've looked at but didn't really give a lot of credit for. But man, when he played it, I've been up against him a couple times now. The three times that I've seen him play it, this card's been a house. Because it looks like a six mana 1-1. One, one. Well, it's not. Especially in a format that now has a bunch of new planeswalkers as commanders. This thing's frequently a six mana 20-20 with flying that kills three planeswalkers and also... Uh, you know, some other cool like Ishai or Rayhan or something on the other side of the field as well. And I don't think it's even necessarily meta dependent because I'm not even playing my plus one counters deck against him all the time. This just happens to get enough value so much that even though it looks situational, it's, it's kind of not. Or I guess he plays it, he's able to find it in the right situations. It's such a neat toolbox card. So a lot of these cards, I feel like they have that appearance of being too situational to be good, but it turns out that they can be really, really swingy and have a really high ceiling if you do them right. And the fact that it came in a precon means that it's relegated to only 2,184 decks, but it's actually probably better than that, because when you get hit with one of these <laughs> six-minute 2020s with flying that killed off a bunch of your stuff, man, it, I tell you what, it doesn't feel good. It's true. Yeah, I, I, can't, I don't have anything else to add because you covered all like... It, it, the card is such a massive blowout uh, if you play it and time it right. Sure, there, there's you know people are going to say, well, there's one time where I played it and it didn't do anything, but how many games have you ever played in where there isn't somebody that has something to do with counters or loyalty or whatever? Like, yeah, like you said, Joey, there, there's going to be a game or a point in every game nearly where it's going to be a really, really solid card that's going to kill several things, kill some Planeswalkers, which never is a bad thing. And I think also, like, this is a format that we play to kind of have really crazy experiences. Like, yeah, a lot of the point is to win, but having toolboxy cards like the ones that come in Commander products can be really helpful. They're, they're designed to be that swingy level of gameplay that's going to make you an awesome, awesome memory. And this definitely accomplishes that. I, so another card that kind of jumps to my mind that I think is getting, you know, not as much credit as it's due, again, is actually the card Fairy Artisans. This one also came in the Commander 2016 product. It's a 3 and a blue for a 2-2 with flying, and it says whenever a non-token creature enters the battlefield under an opponent's control, you get an artifact token copy of that, and then you remove any other co token copies that it's made already. 
this one didn't look great to me. I'll be perfectly honest. When I saw it, I was kind of like, eh, I think it's whatever. But that same friend with the, the Teneb deck, well, he also has a Mishra deck and he's running the Fairy Artisans in that. And when I played Marin against him, I realized I couldn't do anything about it. Because every time I revived any creature from my graveyard, like an Eternal Witness, well, he would get that same effect. And then I'd want to bring back some other really cool card and he would get it at the same time too. So even this card, even though it looked a little situational, it was actually a total powerhouse. And not just on my turns. Other folks would play really great things, like their commanders, for example, and he would get a copy. It was ever-shifting, but... When are people not playing good cards or playing good creatures? Like, it was just really impressive. A lot of these Commander Precon original cards have actually really been impressing me. Even if they look swingy, they can be really impressive. And the fact that they came in those Precons and looked a little eh, and they have that limited supply, I think is just, it's giving them lesser statistics than they deserve. Yeah, Fairy Artisans is a perfect one to, to point out because, you know, it's in just under 3,000 decks. Based on the utility that card offers, though, Again, like we talked about Fairy's Protection, if you're playing a blue deck, that's probably not a wrong choice in your deck. It has evasion, and it's a 2-2 for four mana. That's not, like, amazing. But just a body on it alone is not terrible. And being able to continuously generate value off every single ETB somebody else plays, it's not just one and done. Like, as long as that sits out there and people are playing things that have an end-of-the-battlefield ability... You get the same thing. You get to copy that ability for, for, for the most part. And if you have a, some kind of a sack outlet... That you mm-hmm. can sack that thing and gain some form of value when the next one is cast. It's even better. Yeah, and there's a bunch of cards that I think fall into this category that just aren't getting the love they deserve. Another one is Azuri's Predation. I don't like Azuri, but I do like Azuri's Predation. I think it's weird that Azuri's Predation doesn't give Azuri any experience counters, but whatever, that's not the point. Azuri's Predation is a green 8-mana sorcery. They're like, yeah, that's a lot of mana, but it says you get a 4-4 creature for every creature that your opponents control, and then those 4-4s fight all of their creatures. Like, sometimes those 4-4s won't survive to their big commander, but you know what? They will survive all of the other creatures. They'll like It's like a green plague wind, almost, and you get a bunch of stuff left over. Even if it's situational, like that's so swingy. It's really, really good. Another card that I've been using is uh, Incite Rebellion. This one came, I think, in the original Duretti deck. Six mana red sorcery. For each player, Incite Rebellion deals damage to that player and all of their creatures equal to the number of creatures they control. Heck, this has been a win condition for me sometimes, like Rakdos Charm, because it deals damage to people equal to the, the arrogance that they had of putting too many creatures in play. It's like a red Wrath of God and... It's also dealing them damage. Like, yeah, sign me up. But both of these cards don't see a whole lot of play. Azuri's Predation's in barely 2,000 decks, and Incite Rebellion's in only like 684. But I just think that they're actually a lot better. But the fact that they came in the precon makes them look cute rather than effective. Yeah, um, and that's a great one, too, where I think people saw that card and saw the mana cost on it, and maybe didn't even bother reading beyond that point. Oh, it's a, it's one of those giantly overcosted commander things they've just jammed in the stack. I'm not interested. Right. And I think that is another, maybe a knock to have against these cards frequently. I think a lot of the ones that we've talked about, Thief of Blood or Incite Rebellion or Azura's Predation, they do tend to be a little high on the mana cost. So sometimes people probably see those and the effects that can be a little situational. And for such a high mana cost, they want something that's probably going to be more efficient more often. But I don't think that that stops these cards in particular from being very good. Just because it came from a precon and looks 
a little like a card that should be cut right away. It looks like a card for beginner players, maybe, or, or something like that, if you want to think of it that way. Like, just because of that, that doesn't mean that it's not a good card. Some of these, even if they're situational, can be really powerful. Well, I mean, by really powerful, a good example would be Kindred Discovery that was in the precon cycle. I think it was in the, the cycle of tribal precons. Um, oh, yeah, 2017. In 2017. Um, and for those that don't recall, Kindred Discovery is an enchantment for three and two blue. So that's not nothing. Like five mana is a decent amount to have to pay for an enchantment to come into play. And when it comes into play, you choose a creature type. Whenever a creature you control of the chosen type enters the battlefield or attacks, you draw a card. Um, mm. it, I play it in my Talran deck where it's set to Drakes. And I've got a, a friend of mine who plays it in his Scarab God deck set to Zombies. If that hits the field and you don't respond to it immediately you are just going to lose the game by the amount of value that player is going to generate. And what's nice about it is because of the attack clause, you don't even always have to wait a full turn. There's plenty of times you can drop that main phase one, swing with your drakes or your zombies and draw four, six, eight, ten, twelve cards, whatever it's going to be. And it's oftentimes that many. Like when I say those big numbers, when you're talking about a token deck um, like zombie or like scarab god or like Talrand, it's oftentimes like six or eight or ten or twelve. And then go to your second main phase and they still have a couple mana free to drop a couple other spells making a few more zombies or drakes you're just done they've, they've just outvalued you um, if you don't win immediately they're going to win immediately it's a super strong card and it's in 2500 decks because the other cards in the cycle are relatively uninspiring and i think it kind of gets lumped in that factor and kind of gets lumped in with eh, it's a precon card it's you know it's fine but it can't be that amazing yeah, and I think that's a really good point to mention, too, that being part of those cycles, and if some of the other members of those cycles are a little underwhelming, I think you're right that that can affect people's understandings or, or evaluations of those cards. Like the lieutenants, for example, I think we talked about them on a previous cast, and the more that we thought about them, the more we were like, you know, these are actually pretty good. But because one or two of them were a little underwhelming, we kind of had categorized the entire series of them into being maybe not too great. There are a couple of other, I'm just going to keep rambling about cards that I really like. Illusionist's Gambit is a really cool blue instant that says if you would be attacked, nah, someone else is getting attacked. Like, that thing's been funny every time I've seen it, only in 1,500 decks. Uh, one of the best white defensive enchantments I've seen in a long time is Mystic Barrier, five-mana enchantment that says players can only attack in one direction, which you get to choose, by the way. So you can choose left or right, and only the person on your left or your right can attack you, and you can switch it around if you like. Like, you always get to pick the person who has the worst creatures is the only person who gets to attack you. That's fantastic, but only showing up in a thousand decks. Like, yeah, there's a whole bunch of these that are actually really great, but they kind of get left in the precon, or their limited supply, or the fact that they look a little situational just it doesn't help out their statistics at all, even though I think that they are kind of kind of awesome. Anyway, I've been talking a whole bunch about stuff that I like. Matt, are there any other ones that you'd like to call out? Uh, I think a lot of the cycles in general, people kind of wrote off in, at first. Stuff like the Lieutenant Cycle, and we talked about it you know, in, in, for Commander 2018, how we were kind of happy that they brought it back. Mm -hmm. I think the Lieutenant Cycle was really fun, just because people always talk about how it's the feel-bads if you don't get to play with your commander. Uh, that was one of the reasons people were happy to see the Tuck rule go away. So encouraging things to make sure that you want to play your commander, like the Lieutenant Cycle. Those were always really fun. Some of the, the vampire cards that came out, like Crimson Honor Guard, stuff like that, where it punished people for not having their commanders. Right. I think those are just some really cool ways to play around with, you know, the, like I said, the politics done right, uh, according to Matt Morgan, patent pending. Uh, <laughs> but uh, just the, the cards that, 
you know, encourage people to play their commanders, not in blatantly obvious ways, but just kind of, you know, here's a residual bonus uh, for doing things X, Y, or Z. So those are some things that I was really happy to see just because it, you have those more casual players who they, you know, they don't use the site, but they just, man, I just want to play with my commander. Cards like that, you know, they see and they're like, okay, cool. Now I'm going to get rewarded for playing the commander that I got super excited to build around. So rewarding players for doing those big, fun, splashy things, I think is never a bad thing. Yeah, I, I like it. I've got one kind of weird question for you guys before we move on to challenging the stats. And I want to see if you guys can guess. Do you know what the most popular commander original card is, according to EDH Rec? The most popular commander original card. Uh, well, for starters, I'm going to guess it's one that's been in multiple decks and been printed a bunch. Oh, Command Tower. <laughs> <laughs> As I'm walking myself through the logic. Yeah, I mean, okay, uh, let's let's go to the non-lands, though. Okay. <laughs> I think that one is a little bit cheap because, yes, Command Tower is showing up in... A million oof, decks. 166,813 decks. That's a lot. But moving past the land that is everywhere, what's another card? You know, I guess the second most popular then. Soul Ring. That was Commander Original. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Uh, Come on now. I know. So it's going to be a card I would guess that's been reprinted in multiple Commander decks. It's good enough to stay in the deck. Man. Non-land. Command... Commander Sphere? Very well done. You are correct. Commander Sphere shows up in 51,990 decks. That's 20% of the decks that it could have shown up in, which is... That's a lot. But yeah, Commander Sphere, we've seen it in a whole bunch of the products, really. So yeah, that is the winner. Good good guessing. You've got both the Command Tower and the Commander Sphere. So I'm proud of you, Dana. Thanks, man. I, I guess Commander Sphere as well. <laughs> oh. I'm, I'm, I guess you're acceptable. Yeah, we're, it's, it's, we're proud. We're <laughs> proud of you too, man. I did it. Alrighty, let's move now to challenging the stats. We're going to take a look at the cards that yeah we think the statistics are wrong about. We think that maybe they should be seeing more play than they currently do, or less play than they currently do. Matt, do you want to start us off challenging the stats? I sure will. So, as we've covered a few times, blue red is not my my jam. Uh, it just doesn't excite me, doesn't get me going, but I think people could be playing something because this card does get me excited because it's almost a carbon copy of uh, a very green card that I love in, in Genesis Wave. Uh, this card is Sahili's Directive. Uh, it's currently only showing up in 143 decks. Um, it's new with Commander 2018, so I know very early returns, but it's fairly far down. Uh, the card list, what Sahili's Directive does, I'll read it for you guys. It's X, red, red, red. For a sorcery with Improvise, which means you can tap uh, an artifact to help pay for one uh, towards that X cost. And you reveal the top X cards of your library. You may put any number of artifact cards you uh, with converted mana cost X or less from among them onto the battlefield. Uh, put all cards revealed this way that weren't put on the battlefield into your graveyard. So even if you're trying to, you know, just flood the board with all these artifacts, uh, if you can't hit, you know, say you, you miss a Blightsteel Colossus because you only went for nine... Um, still puts in the graveyard, goes back in you know your library, all that fun stuff. But Genesis Wave is such a powerful card, and we've all seen you know these huge Genesis Waves or Genesis Hydra, any variant of that, that just flood the board for the green player. If you're playing red artifacts, this probably should be as your way of you know we talk about red not having great sources of of card advantage. 
you're going to get multiple cards off of this one card into play. Um, it's a great way for red decks to generate card advantage if you're playing mono-red artifacts like, you know, Felden of the Third Path or Duretti, um, or if you're playing red and blue or whatever. You're going to get a lot of value out of this because your artifacts are just going to sit around normally. Like, you can tap equipment to help pay for this. So if you're playing a Valduck deck, for example... <laughs> there it is. There it is. There it is. You're welcome. Uh, you can tap, you know, five equipment to pay for five of that X cost. If you're playing a lot of artifacts in general, this is going to get you just a ton of value. Only 143 decks. Like I said, I know we're, we don't see, you know, great numbers so far just because people are still brewing. Still getting lists online for Commander 2018. But I would hope this probably sees top 10 play for new cards for, for Commander 2018. I think it's just that good of a card uh, for any number of red decks. I really do like it. And, hey, speaking of artifacts, the challenge of stats that I've got this week is itself an artifact. I am actually stealing this particular bit of tech from Donald Miner, the creator of EDA Trek, because he just enlightened me about this one, and holy crap, am I impressed. The card that I'm looking at right now is Liquid Metal Coating. This is a two-mana artifact that says to tap, it can turn target permanent into an artifact in addition to its other types until end of turn. Very, very innocuous, but it can cover anything with liquid metal. It can turn any permanent in play into an artifact, which is great for Freyalise Lanawar's Fury decks. Freyalise Lanawar's Fury, she is the green planeswalker that can be your commander, and her minus two ability says to destroy target artifact or enchantment. It's not showing up on her page at all, liquid metal coating isn't. And man, I do think it kind of should, because while she can do really great stuff with elves and drawing your cards and doing really great green things, she can also use liquid metal coating to tap, turn anything into an artifact, and then minus two, destroy any permanent you want. That's just crazy cool. I think it could also be really great in Zakama Primal Calamity, because Zakama also has an ability to destroy any artifact or enchantment, and you can turn anything into an artifact. Really, really cool tech. So kudos to Don, and I really wanted to share the thing that he had shared with me right here on the podcast, because that thing's blowing my mind. It makes me want to build a Freyly stack, how cool that interaction is. I would say even beyond that, I mean, I'm running in a mono-red deck um, that I'm actually going to talk about next for Challenge of Stats, but even in that deck, just because I'm running a you know density of artifact removal that if I happen to have that out, I'm almost always going to have one artifact removal spell in hand and it gives me a way to hit that doubling season or hit that Catherine's Crusade or hit that super scary creature coming at me. So like it's that much better in a commander that can do some interaction with it. But even if you're just in something like mono red that is really limited in what it can deal with removing, it's been great in that deck as well. Yeah, I love that. That's a really good point, too. Can help Red deal with some of its weaknesses? Totally on board. So then, Dano, that challenge of stats that you mentioned, what's yours? I am going to challenge the stats about Pyromancer's Goggles in Mono Red. It is a five-mana artifact that can tap for a red, and if that red mana is used to cast an instant or sorcery spell, you copy that spell. Uh, it's currently in 4,200 decks, and the majority of them are red blue spell slinger type decks uh like mizzic and melic mizzix and melic i'm running it in my mono red lathwest deck i just mentioned and i i got it out twice in two games today where i played that deck um and i made a note actually of what i used to copy with it cuz that deck isn't particularly deep on instant sorceries either i've got 14 sorceries and five instants so there's only 19 spells i can copy with it but almost every one is one worth copying 
and it's a mana rock. So even if you're not copying a thing, I mean, ideally, you know, a five mana mana rock isn't great, but it's not a dead card either. And if you do cast a spell that can be copied with it, I cap, cap, I cast Magmatic Insight in the first game, uh, followed by Tormenting Voice, which, you know, red is always hurting for draw. Well, it turned that discard a land, draw two into a discard a land, draw four, because the way most of those red discard, it, it's part of the casting cost. You're not copying the discard. The discard is part of the cost. So when you copy that spell, you've already paid the cost. So it doubled both those draws in that game. And I got it out in the next game and hit Magmatic Insight again. And then I hit Chaos Warp with it. Got to hit two targets. Uh, hit Wild mm. Guess. Got to draw a few more. And then I hit a Mana Geyser with it. And I think there was 14 mana tapped or 14 <laughs> lands tapped. That turned it into a 28 mana bump. Now, wow. Now that's, that's, so, it's, so it's good is what you're saying. It's really, yeah. <laughs> and like, you know what? You're, I'm not saying put it in every deck. But like if you're in a mono red deck, again, like we talked about, like metal coding where your options are limited. And if you're running all of... All of those draw spells, it's good probably just for those, let alone being able to copy something like a Cathartic Reunion or a Blasphemous Act where sometimes there's something that's like 19 toughness on the field. Well, your Blasphemous Act is going to kill everything then at that point. It's it's just almost... I've never regretted casting it, and I think it probably should be tried out in more than the 4,000 decks it's currently in. I like that reasoning a lot. I'm totally on board. You've mentioned it before on a podcast, like a whole uh, Magmatic Insight drawing some extra cards. And the first time you mentioned that, it was like, oh, red drawing cards. I'm listening. So yeah, to hear that you've still gotten good returns from that spell is really encouraging. And I, that's another one of those things like Locomotive Coding and Frey Elise, where I'm just like, hmm, maybe I should build a mono red deck so that I can try this out. Maybe I should build a Frey Elise deck so I can try these out because these are just such sweet interactions. Yeah, it's always fun doing those kind of things that no one expects to see happen. Right. Alrighty, guys, I've got one last question for you. We've talked about some cards from previous precons that are maybe affected by that whole weird reverse precon effect. Are there any from the most recent Commander 2018 set that you think will also be affected by that reverse precon effect? They'll get, I don't know, kept in the decks that they came in or else just pushed to the side and sort of forgotten as being maybe a little subpar, even though maybe they're not. Are there some that are really ubiquitous but won't show up as much because they'll stay in the deck? Are there some cards, even though we don't have a ton of statistics about Commander 2018 just yet, are there some that jump out to you as being better than the statistics will end up showing? I'm, I'm personally curious about the storm cycle. I kind of dismissed it initially because I looked at it and I was like, well, okay, it's a card that gets better the more often things you don't want to have happen happen, which is your commander dying. And if your commander's dying a bunch, maybe you should figure out that problem versus having a card that gets better when it's happened a bunch. But I think that was maybe being a little bit dismissive of the cycle. Like they, they've printed cycles before I haven't loved, like the Vile cycle, for example. So I think I might have a bias that when I see a cycle that I immediately find a flaw with, I want to mentally dismiss it. And I think the Fury cycle, I think the Storm cycle maybe isn't that amazing, but I also don't know if I have seen it played enough because I think think there are situations where it is going to be really, really good. I think you've got Fury Storm written down here, Joey, and I think that's one in particular. I'm really curious to see how it plays out. Yeah, I, I really like Fury Storm. And me, uh, of the three of us, I think I tend to have a lot more partner decks than both of you guys do. And those Storm cards in partner decks especially, like that's they're really, really good when you can get multiple triggers on that storm because you had multiple commanders to cast during the game. Fury Storm especially just looks really intense to 
get one of those going. That's probably also an interaction that a lot of players aren't even aware of. So again, they probably just, and, and myself as well, when I first read it, I didn't even think of partners. So again, you immediately dismiss it. And I think a lot of people probably also dismiss those without thinking about the partner thing as well. Yeah, 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 that absolutely makes sense to me. Another one that I think, uh, this is something that we mentioned a little bit ago with the lieutenant cards that maybe kind of get pushed to the side from the other precons. And I think that that will especially be the case for these new lieutenants at uncommon rarity that we saw in the uh, the Commander 2018 precons as well. There are some really, really intense lieutenant guards. The uh, loyal subordinate is the three mana, three one black lieutenant that has menace and as long as you control your commander during combat, everyone else loses three life. Man, I I really dig that card, actually. I think that's a really great way for a control deck, especially, to finish out the game. Something like Mogus or Scarab God is especially good for it because those commanders are kind of always going to be around and they like to finish the game without having to put in a lot more effort on their part. It's really easy. It's a win condition that inexorably leads you towards victory without you having to pay additional mana or anything like that. And I think that's really cool. But even more than that, I like the Loyal Unicorn. I really think that people are going to think it's not great. But Loyal Unicorn, that's the white one. 3-4 with Vigilance that gives Lieutenant... If you got your commander, it gives all of your stuff Vigilance and prevents all damage to them for that combat. Like, that's really good in a combat deck like Saskia or something like that. I just think folks are going to maybe forget about those. But they're actually really great. You could run this in Dragonlord Orgitai or something. Like, if Brave the Sands can see play in nearly 5,000 decks or so, I think that Loyal Unicorn should also see a lot of play because that Vigilance is powerful. Preventing damage to your attacking creatures is powerful. Like, those Lieutenants, I, I think it's no joke. I think they're actually really good, even if they look uncommon and maybe some of them look underwhelming. I, I think the times where they're good, they're very good. And so I don't want folks to, to leave them out in the rain because I think they're kind of neat. Matt, any from you? I was actually going to talk about the the apprentice cycle again. Uh, the one that I poo pooed on the most, loyal apprentice, the red one that uh, gives you a one one Thopter token every turn. That's the most played lieutenant card of 2018. Uh, it's coming in at 108 decks as of now, and then 99 decks for loyal unicorn number two. So I think it's kind of weird that the one that to me makes the least amount of impact is is being played the most. Loyal guardian, the green one that puts a uh, plus one plus one counter. At the beginning of combat, uh, that one is down in 77 decks. So it, there's a pretty decent gap, you know, forming already for all the decks or all the, the lieutenant cards from 2018. I'm just really surprised that the the two drop one in a format full of cast your five drops and six drops and, you know, have fun. Uh, the two drop is is getting the most play so far. So that was kind of interesting to me to see. And all the commanders, you know, all the Planeswalkers, Legalist commanders, those aren't really seeing a whole lot of play in 99 decks, it looks like, at least compared to a lot of the other new cards, um, which I thought was kind of worth mentioning as well. Yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me too. Um, another card that I think could maybe get a little overlooked is Reality Scramble. This came in the Lord Windgrace deck. It's the weird four mana red sorcery with retrace that kind of polymorphs any particular permanent you control. You shuffle that card into your deck and then you go get another card from from your deck that has the same type the next one that would be on top of your deck but you can maybe finagle with that card if you've only got like one planeswalker for example you can always find it or if you have no other planeswalkers in your deck for example you can reality scramble your lord windgrace to reset it so you can activate its loyalty again or something like that like i don't know it's another one of those instances where it looks like a kind of janky pre-con card and you're not really sure what to do with it but if you can find something to do with it it can actually secretly be really good there are just a whole bunch of examples from that, and it's it's neat to see all of these Commander original cards, because I think they're actually a lot more powerful than folks give them credit for. 
Yeah, I fully agree. Um, there's some hidden gems there that people have dismissed, and I, I'm guilty of it as well. And there, a lot of them are worth giving a closer look to. Yeah, they're not all going to be Teferi's protection level of amazing, but that doesn't mean that they're not good. Yeah, for sure. Alrighty, folks. Are there any other last-minute things that you want to mention about this reverse precon effect? Or, hey, listeners, are there any cards that you think are suffering from the reverse precon effect? You should uh, definitely let us know. And let us know how wrong we are, too. I mean, we're, we're good at that, being wrong. <laughs> well, Matt's good at being wrong, that's for sure. Hey, who is undefeated in these bets? Let's, let's remember. <laughs> Alrighty, with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-hosts so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitterverse at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. You can find me on the Twitterverse at Dana Roach. And you can hear me once a week talking Commander on my other show, Commander Central. And remember, they're holding out for a hero until the end of the night. I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and EDHRECcast on Facebook and Twitter. We're doing a giveaway when EDHREC gets 5,000 likes and when the EDHRECcast gets 1,000 followers on Twitter. So head on over there, smash those like buttons, and you get a chance at a cool prize. You can contact us, as Matt mentioned, at EDHRECcast at gmail.com, and you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast. This podcast is posted every week on EDHREC's Community Content Spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and more insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. I'm sad you didn't like my Bonnie Tyler reference, Joey. Oh, it's not that I didn't like it. It was just that it was a weird place to begin the podcast. I'm really hoping uh, Ken outros us with uh, a sample name. <laughs> Golden. I mean, hey, I, I met my husband, like, the first time that I met him, he was in a production of Footloose, so I, I have a soft spot for that song. Nice. Nice.